welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on April 10th, Lord's Day service. to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning, found in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, fill our hearts with your spirit and grace. Search out our hidden corruptions. We confess that without you we are blind and ignorant. Through your word, help us to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The key to understanding this passage is to see why Jesus refuses to give a sign to the Pharisees. But first, we need to be reminded that signs were commonplace in the Old Testament. There are many occasions in the Old Testament where God gives signs to the people. And that's why God says in Numbers 14, 11, How long will they not believe in me in spite of all of the signs that I have done Among them. There are also times in the Old Testament when a public sign is needed to certify a prophecy or to uh, resolve a disputed claim. The sign proved the legitimacy of a vexing claim, for example, with Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 or Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. In the Old Testament, signs fulfilled something that was predicted and had to correspond to the prediction of what would occur. And so, we need to understand why Jesus refuses to give them a sign, while also appreciating that signs are a common thing in the Old Testament. And so we're going to understand why Jesus refuses to give the Pharisees a sign from heaven, and then we can learn a few lessons from this passage. And so, why does Jesus refuse to give a sign from heaven to the Pharisees? Well, there's five reasons. And the first is because of who clamors for a sign. Who asks for the sign? Well, it's the Pharisees. But look more carefully. Notice Jesus says in his response, why does this generation seek a sign? So let's ask again, who is seeking the sign? Well, it's the Pharisees as representatives of this generation. And Jesus mentions this generation three other times in Mark's gospel. For example, in Mark 8.38, he describes this generation as adulterous and sinful. In Mark 9.19, he describes this generation as faithless. And then in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus use this phrase several more times. For example, he refers to this generation as children in Matthew eleven sixteen, And there it's not a compliment. 
he refers to this generation as evil, as more worthy of judgment than Nineveh, and like a house in which dwells eight evil spirits in Matthew chapter 12. And he also refers to this generation as twisted in Matthew chapter 17. And so, who is clamoring for a sign? Well, it's the Pharisees who are representatives of this generation. The people clamoring for a sign are those who are adulterous, sinful, faithless, evil, twisted children who are worthy of more judgment than Nineveh. The people requesting a sign are those who defy Jesus and tempt Jesus' disciples to be ashamed of Jesus, like we'll see in Mark 8, 38. They want to dispute Jesus. They want to test Jesus so they can embarrass him. And when they request a sign, they out themselves as those who think they can dictate to God the conditions under which they will or will not believe in him. And so it says they want a sign from heaven. In other words, they want a miracle and they want it on their terms. They want irrefutable, unequivocal, invisible proof as they define it on their terms. And what they want from Jesus really eliminates the need for faith. It's a classic case of confirmation bias. They think themselves entitled to demand signs on their terms. And then they will sit back at a critical distance to shoot holes in whatever Jesus does. And so Jesus doesn't give them a sign. Because these ideologues won't be convinced of a truth that they are already hardened to. And so the first reason Jesus refuses to give them a sign is because of who clamors for the sign. The second reason Jesus refuses to give them a sign is because of when they clamor for a sign. See, when you look at Mark's gospel on the whole, Mark chapter 3 verse 6 is a turning point. This is where the Pharisees begin plotting Jesus' death. Prior to this, when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, mainly in Mark chapter 2, Jesus defends his actions when they accuse him, and he does so rather patiently. But they reject his explanations. For example, they reject Jesus' authority to forgive sins in Mark 2.10. They reject Jesus' explanation for why he ate with sinners in Mark 2:17. They reject Jesus's reasons for why the disciples did not fast in Mark 2:19 through 20. They reject Jesus's justification for supposedly breaking the Sabbath, Mark 2:25 through 28. And as we see repeatedly, they reject Jesus's miracles. And so, the Pharisees reject his evidence, they reject his explanations, and then plot his death. And so, now jumping to Mark chapter 8, when they come to him requesting a sign, Jesus refuses to give them the evidence. They have refused to believe no matter what he does. They've refused to believe no matter what they've seen with their own eyes, no matter what he says. And that's why Jesus doesn't give them a sign. The third reason Jesus doesn't give them a sign is because of what kind of sign they clamor for. They lobby Jesus for a sign that, confer, that conforms to their expectations, not to God's expectations. 
They ask for a sign from heaven. And when the Pharisees demand a sign, they're wanting to see something supernatural. They're wanting to see a miracle. But not the kind of miracle, you know, feeding the 4,000. No, that's not the kind of miracle they're interested in. They want Jesus to deliver Israel and destroy Israel's enemies. Maybe they'd rather Jesus march around seven times and so that the army of the Romans crumble like happens in Joshua. They want some sort of sign that confirms their view of what they think the Messiah should do. They don't want a Messiah who heals leprosy. They don't want a Messiah who feeds the 4,000. They want a Messiah who will triumphantly destroy the Roman armies. They're expecting the Messiah to come and deliver God's wrath against enemies of Israel. And in that point in time, that would be the Romans. They want a Superman who will complete their vision of an earthly program which starts with destroying the Roman tyrants. And so when they ask Jesus for a sign from heaven, they are looking for proof that Jesus is the Messiah of their expectations. They want Jesus to give them proof of what they want to be true. And so Jesus refuses to give them a sign because to do so would be to give into and feed their false expectations. And so Jesus refuses to give them a sign because of who clamors for the sign, because of when they clamor for the sign, because of what kind of sign they clamor for. And fourth, Jesus refuses to give them a sign because of why they clamor for a sign. They seek a sign to test him, it says. Their motive, in other words, is not a desire to learn. Their motive doesn't come from an openness to be convinced. Their motive is to test him. Their motive is to discredit him in the eyes of the people. And so Jesus refuses because some people are hardened and given up to the lust of their hearts, as we see in Romans 1.24. Jesus refuses because some people who take pleasure in unrighteousness are sent strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This conflict with the Pharisees ends with these words in verse 13. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And that's really interesting because because the evangelical world presents Jesus as this person who pursues you no matter what, all the time, without fail, permanently. And yet, Jesus left them, we're told in verse 13. He doesn't pursue them. He leaves them. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is the decisive abandonment of the Pharisees. He's abandoning them. He's done with them. If they cannot accept what they have already seen, if they cannot accept what they've already heard, if they cannot accept the miracles they've seen with their own eyes time and time again, then there is no point in giving them a sign right now when they request it. In other words, they have missed their opportunity. Maybe you remember Mark chapter 4. Jesus makes a distinction between those to whom the secret of the kingdom have been revealed and those outside 
who don't understand. And that's the language in Mark chapter 4. There are people who are outside and they don't understand. And Jesus tells the parables, we're told not to reveal, but to conceal from those who are outside. But then it reveals to those who are inside. Mark chapter 8, 13 is Jesus's deliberate disengagement from the Pharisees and all they represent. And so Jesus refuses to give them a sign because God does not expect absolute permanency in ministry relationships, especially with those who offer proof of rebellion against Jesus. The fifth reason Jesus refuses to give them a sign is because others also perform signs. In Mark chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus warned that the false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. You see, others will perform signs. In other words, providing signs of the sort that the Pharisees want, well, that can be faked. That can be fraudulent. That can be misleading. There will come false prophets and false Christ, Jesus says, that will perform the same sorts of signs. And people will see those signs and they will follow the false Christ and the false prophets. In fact, at the foot of the cross in Mark chapter 15, the bystanders gather and they demand that Jesus come down on their command so that they would then believe that Jesus is the Christ. What are they doing? They're demanding a sign on their terms. And this is what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1.22. People want convincing signs. Why? Because it removes the work of faith and it removes the work of discernment. And so Jesus refuses to give the Pharisees a sign because ultimately they need to have faith in Christ. They need to discern with the help of the Spirit the truth from the way he dies and then from the reports of his resurrection. And likewise, in the modern world, we too want signs. It would be much easier if I sit in my chair and say, okay, God, I'll believe in you if, hmm, what can I come up with? If you do this, then I'll believe. Do we not do this? Do we not operate with God in the exact same way? And you must know that Jesus has already given you signs as well. And they are recorded for us in Scripture. The Pharisees must discern the truth from Christ's death and resurrection. And you too, you too must not demand signs from God, but you too must discern the truth of Jesus Christ by the way he dies on the cross in the reports of his resurrection in Scripture. And so we see five reasons why Jesus refuses to give them a sign. And there are several lessons we can learn from this passage. So let's consider four lessons to learn from this passage. The first lesson and the most obvious lesson from this passage is that we ought not demand miraculous signs from God or his people. We must not demand miraculous signs from God or from God's people. Now, miracles are presented to us in Scripture, and miracles are evidence of the truth of Jesus. But it's not proper for you to demand a miracle right now as evidence that will convince you. 
No one may say, oh, I won't believe unless I get a personalized miracle. In the case of the Pharisees, they had seen Jesus perform signs, they had seen Jesus perform miracles, and they did not accept them. You might recall that when Jesus performed miracles, the Pharisees thought the miracles were evidence of Satan rather than God, according to Mark 3, 22 through 30. And so what does that teach us? What well, teaches us that those who demand signs are usually those who have already received them and jilted them and refused them and rejected them. They have a higher standard than even God. And the Pharisees demanding a sign really isn't much different from Satan asking Jesus to turn sto stones into loaves of bread. And what we learn when Jesus refuses Satan and when Jesus refuses the Pharisees here is that there is no room for wonder working as a mere sign of Jesus' power to appease a skeptic who rejects Jesus' other revelation. Now, the modern world, of course, is filled with sign seekers just of this sort. One atheist parlor trick goes like this. If God existed, why doesn't he appear right now? And then the atheist grabs a glass, holds it in his hand, and says, if God existed, he could stop this glass from hitting the ground. Then they drop it, and it dramatically shatters into pieces. Now, what are we to say to this modern sign seeker? Well, there's lots of things we could say. But if I were to stand in a room with you and drop a glass and you fail to catch it, does that mean you don't exist? No. It proves nothing more than you chose not to catch the glass. And that's where Greg Kokel says this argument tells you absolutely nothing about God. The only thing it is capable of showing us is that if God does exist, he's not a circus animal who can be teased into jumping through hoops to appease the whims of the foolish people. And so the first thing we need to learn from this passage is we, not, we, we ought not to demand miraculous signs from God or his people on our terms. The second thing we need to learn from this passage is we don't need to confuse sign-seeking with prayer. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they seek a sign to test him, and as we've seen, Jesus refuses their request. But this does not mean that we should not go to God in prayer and ask him for things. Not only should we pray to God and ask for things, but we should ask God to perform great feats. And that's a very different thing from the sign-seeking that you see from the Pharisees here. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus rebuke a person who came to him with a genuine need and an openness of faith. This passage should not discourage genuine believers who sincerely ask God to perform a great act. The third lesson we need to learn from this passage is that we ought to be grieved when we see people continue in sin. In response to the Pharisees' challenge, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Jesus sighs because of the unresponsiveness, because of the rebellion and the hard-heartedness of this generation. 
And so this is a sign of sorrow. Jesus mourns because these wicked men are ruining their own souls. The feeling which the Lord expresses ought to be the feeling of all Christians towards those who resist the Lord. We ought to say like David in Psalm 119, I beheld the faithless and was grieved. We ought to have the mind of Lot, who in 2 Peter 2.8, vexed his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. We ought to have the mind of the godly in Ezekiel's day, who in Ezekiel 9.4, sighed over all the abominations committed in the land. We ought to have the mind of Paul, who in Romans 9.2, had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen who rejected Christ. And you know, sometimes when we think of Christianity as a system, or as an ideology, or as a philosophy, or as a worldview even, we forget that we ought to be grieved, we ought to have sorrow when people continue in sin and unbelief. And fourth, and finally, from this passage, we ought not be intimidated by sign seekers. We need to learn to not be intimidated by sign seekers. Obstinate unbelief will have something to say. Sign seekers appear in every generation. Scoffers are nothing new. They make their demands on their terms and then they ridicule those who trust in God's faithfulness. Every generation has their Pharisees Every generation has their Voltaire and their Rousseau. Every generation has their Darwin and their Dawkins. In our day, it seems like the skeptic's voice is louder than the believer's voice. Many Christians are concerned, and I understand this concern on some level. But in another sense, my fellow Christians, there is no cause for concern. As the English poet William Blake wrote, Voltaire, Rousseau, mock on, mock on, tis all in vain. In other words, the scoffer can scoff, the mocker can mock, the obstinate can continue in their unbelief, they can do it with letters behind their name, they can do it on network television, yet it is all in vain. Our Lord is sovereign and victorious. Their mocks and their scorns are like throwing sand against the wind. And every sand becomes a gem reflected in God's divine rays. The sand that blows back blinds the mocking eye. The sand that falls to the ground becomes the path for the faithful to step forward. The scoffers will scoff and the mockers will mock, and they want observable proof on their terms. And one thing we learn from this passage is that trusting in God doesn't work like that. The God of the Bible has not arranged things in such a way that that's how faith is granted. And just think about it. A husband might trust that his wife is faithful because he hired a private investigator to prove it. Or a husband can trust that his wife is faithful because of the fruit of her life, because of her character and her good works. The first way of trust sabotages the relationship. 
The second way of trust enhances love and intimacy. And so, in conclusion, we ought to reach a verdict about Jesus. And when Christians examine the fruit of his life, when Christians examine the fruit of his character and his mighty works, they conclude that Jesus is worthy of full loyalty. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, may we not be a people who demand signs from you. And may we not be a people discouraged from asking you for great feats in prayer. May we not be a people who are intimidated by the sign seekers of our generation. Rather, help us to examine the fruit of Christ's life and see that he is worthy of our full loyalty. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Thank you.